enterprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And this show is brought to you by Ragnar Relays. Every adventure is better together, and Ragnar proves it with their road and trail races where teams run relay style. There are over 40 races across the nation with road and trail races. The road races are about 200 miles. The trail races are about 120-ish miles or so. But don't let the mileage intimidate you. You'll be splitting it up with 8 to 12 other runners as part of your team. And it's just a wonderful, adventurous experience. If you love running, you almost always love running more with other people. And this is the best way to do it. Ragnar is for everyone, any fitness level, and any running experience. So save 80 bucks off any Ragnar road or trail races with promo code RAMBLING19. That's RAMBLING19. Just go to runragnar.com. That's Ragnar. R-A-G-N-A-R, runragnar.com to sign up. So this episode is with James Dunn. I was really excited to get James on the show for a bunch of reasons. He's a fascinating guy, a you know, really good writer. Uh, the link to his, his blog is in the show notes. And I just couldn't wait to talk to him because this is someone who does not have a traditional running background and now has experienced so many things in the running community that, you know, I just find really inspiring and motivational, but even more than that, just fascinating to hear from. And I just love his perspective on so many things. So check out my wide ranging conversation with James Dunn. Hello, James, and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to have you on. I'll tell you what, man, you have been a busy guy these past four and a half years. Yeah, busy and, and now quite tired, <laughs> to, to put it lightly. <laughs> yeah, but it's funny. For you, tired must be a relative term uh, whose definition has changed quite a bit in the last decade. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like I ran uh, a 10K yesterday and was really tired after it and then thought, well, actually, four years ago, walking was tiring let alone running it's yeah everything is slightly more relative than it was before that's for sure and four months ago running a 10k would have been like a warm-up for you yeah uh, yeah the um the little run in the desert has slightly uh worn my legs out for a bit so i'm starting to retrain again for um for some marathons in the autumn the little run in the desert i love it they should they should rename it that maybe you have like a new marketing logo marketing logo for that um let's let's just just say what the name is because i've read all about it and i'm still not sure how to pronounce it uh so marathon de sab some people call it marathon de sables but it's it should be marathon de sab apparently i've been corrected numerous times already (laughs) well well better you than me um we, we can just call it mds for sure yeah um that i know that that fits my my lexicon um but before <laughs> we get into it you you have done amazing work since 2015 not only as a runner but someone who's chronicling it and also reaching out to other people and kind of creating this running community both in person and online which is truly remarkable so before we get into you know your your kind of the running world that you've constructed in and around yourself Let's go back 10 years to your 20th birthday and kind of where this all started. 
Okay. Yeah. So it well, it goes even further back than that, really. Um, it was when I was about seventeen, and my best friend ran the London Marathon, and he was super fit at, at school and everything. So for him, it was it was a big undertaking. But for me, looking at him, he was like an idol. He was already my best friend, but in like that moment, he became quite legendary in our school. And I remember going, "Oh, you know, I'd love to do that one day." Um, and then, yeah, fast forward to the twentieth birthday, and I uh, I just started at university, and I thought, you know. I want to try and do something exciting. So I, after one too many beers, uh, I got up in front of all my friends and said, I will run a marathon before I'm 30. Uh, and I think everyone forgot about it the next day, um, but it stuck in my head. And every time I'd like try and get into running, I would sign up for a 10K uh, and I would do training maybe two weeks before because my I had no real drive to, to sort of do anything um, fitness-wise or exercise-wise. And, you know, every birthday it came to, I'd have that reminder of going, you said you'd do it before you're 30. You said you'd do it before you're 30. And I'd be like 27, 28 and be like, okay, it's getting, it's getting sooner now. Um, and it wasn't until um, I went through a very bad patch of depression and uh, I really felt like I needed to do something. And um, it was then that I realized that running needed to be, that was the catalyst to, to sort of fix me or, or at least uh, give me something to, focus on and that's kind of where the running started it was uh really late one night uh i was weighing about two i'm trying to think of the american uh calculations about 290 pounds uh and i went i need to do something so i just picked up uh, like a pair of really battered old trainers and went out the door i live in the middle of nowhere so no street lights which was a good thing uh <laughs> and i ran just as far as i could run uh, and in my mind, it was like a marathon, but it was probably less than a, a kilometer at the, that point. And I remember getting to the end of that really out of breath, uh, really, really struggling, but just feeling incredible. That sort of swell of, of adrenaline and runners high and everything. And I remember coming back from that run and that's when I went, yeah, this is, this is what I'm going to do. This is, this is how I'm going to get back to being happy again. Um, yeah, and I sort of I got placed in the London Marathon completely by chance. I had put in the, the ballot um, because it coming to my 30th birthday, I put my name in the ballot and it just so happened that uh, I'm one of the most hated people in, in the running world. I applied for the London Marathon ballot and got it first time. Um, as, as basically it, a non-runner. It, it kind of <laughs> yeah, as basically yeah. a non-runner, you got into the London Marathon, which is like, I remember reading that in your blog. I was like, oh my goodness. What you just said is exactly what my mind was thinking. Like so many people will read this and be like, oh my goodness. Why you, James? Why you? Yeah, that, I can feel the hate mail coming already. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back to, you said that you were, you were suffering from depression um, prior to kind of the beginning of your, your running career in earnest. So was it simply a lack of physical fitness and just, you know, you know, in the, that sort of thing that had, that had led to this depressive state or were there other things going on that kind of like put you in that, you know, kind of put you under the weight of that? I mean, I'd always been uh, unfit. I'd never been healthy, really. Um, I've always been overweight, overweight since I was a kid. So it was more uh, my uh, partner I was living with at the time broke up with me and, uh, and whatever. And then uh, my, my grandmother sadly passed away and we were very close. Um, and those two were very, very close together. Uh, and it was those two kind of waves crashing against me that really pushed me uh, into a into a, like a spiral. 
Um, and I was living by myself. So a lot of people, it was very easy to close the world off every night and not have to talk to anyone about how I was feeling. Um, and I've always used food and, uh, you know, distracting my mind with TV as a way of coping my depression, which in itself is always a, a downward spiral. Um, so yeah, it wasn't really until I, I'd hit the sort of metaphorical rock bottom that I realized I needed to do something. Uh, and it just happened that, that running was that, that thing. So was there this, did it feel like a paradigm shifting moment at the time when you went on this run? Yeah, it really did. Um, yeah, it's it sort of, I look back and it's probably a bit more dramatic in my head now than it was at the time. But I just remember coming home and being really pleased with myself and proud of myself. Uh, and I hadn't really have felt that feeling of pride for a long, long time. And it was having this monumental thing that I knew I had now. Um, I've sort of, my, my grandmother and I used to use a phrase called rural stories in the end. Uh, and it was all about living your best life and, you know, making sure that you left stories to people to talk about when you're gone. And uh, I remember thinking this, you know, running could be my story. You know, this might be something that people will talk about uh, one day when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm not around anymore. Which is a pretty big leap, considering that you had literally just picked it up. And, but it, it does point to the, the effect that it had on you. And obviously, this goal had really kind of, you know, grown inside of you for a long time. If, you know, at the age of 20, you just kind of blurt this out at a party. Obviously, like, I feel like this is one of those instances where alcohol can, like, serve as a truth serum in some instances where, like, you just kind of blurt out what you've always been thinking and hoping for. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a, I think there's an Ernest Hemingway quote that says, uh, do sober what you said you do drunk. And I feel like I've lived up to that uh, <laughs> that phrase. <laughs> that's I. That's a really good one. I hadn't heard that before. That that is a great line. Here you are. You're living it now because you've run yeah. <laughs> dozens of marathons. You've done all sorts of things. Um, and then when you got into the London Marathon, I know you'd you'd kind of done a half before then, and you know you would, weren't exactly prepared for it, but you you were able to do it, which is which is awesome. When you had gotten into the London Marathon, you got that acceptance. What was that feeling like? Uh, it was so I, they did my first ever half marathon and came back that evening and found out I was in the London Marathon. So I'd just done this half and I didn't do well. I hadn't trained. I mean, I felt like I trained, but not well enough. Um, I, again, had gone back to the way of, you know, doing excuses for not doing exercise. And when I found out I was in London, it was that another ramp up of being, okay, I need to do something. I need to need to get a plan. I need to do you know, I need to focus my mind on, on the running. Um, so I gave up drinking, uh, not that I drank very heavily at the time, but I, uh, focused my mind a bit more and I started eating healthy. I started using, uh, social media to kind of get inspiration for ways of running as well. Um, which I mean, has always been a real help for me ever since really. So you really tailored your life to fit your running goals in a sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, it was something that I was just so excited about. Um, so I got the place in London uh, and I knew I was going to do it for charity um, for the uh, care home that my grandmother was in when uh, in her last few years um, and for a Tibetan charity. I used to live in India in Tibetan refugee uh, settlement. So those were the two charities. And I remember my friends saying, yeah, you know, but everyone runs a marathon for charity. You've got to do more than that as a joke and you know me being me i took it seriously and i ended up um 
only having done two half marathons a year before, I'd signed up for four marathons and six half marathons for the oh, following God. year, uh, <laughs> which was hindsight was not a smart move. Um, I got a stress fracture in my foot and uh, the training was really hard, uh, like mentally and physically. Um, but it's kind of paved the way for, you know, the bigger, bigger things I've done since. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and how much of um, how much did you take on in this endeavor, especially in the beginning uh, as a solo venture versus trying to bring people kind of into your running community or joining other running communities? Um, it was completely solo to start off with. I would run at night. By myself, I was, I've always been very self-conscious. I, I still am now, even though I've lost a hundred pounds. Um, I'm very like, if I could run and make sure no one would see me, the better. So I would, uh, I would, I would tell people I was running, but there wasn't, there wasn't any way that they could come and run with me. I would make sure they didn't know when I was running. Um, and that didn't really change until I ran, um, the first half marathon that I realized, you know, that I wasn't the slowest. I mean, I came, I think I was in the last, 50 places i think in a marathon with with 7000 people but i felt like i wasn't the worst and i felt like i i was that sort of instant feeling of a community there were people really willing you on um because i thought people would would point at me and be like oh that guy's not trying hard enough and that really played in my mind in the lead up to the first half marathon but ever since then i've realized and sort of convinced everyone who's coming into running that it's the most supportive community um which yeah, social media and and has really kind of rammed home that now even more so. So you kind of had like two different things going on. You had this internal satisfaction with how things were going, yet you had this kind of external um, way about you that you try to like hide what was going on. So that that's that's kind of interesting because it seemed like you know, you weren't able to fully embrace all these changes that you were making. So when you were finally felt more comfortable. To, to just share with other people what you were up to and, and really kind of involve um, the broader community. And I, I've read your blog posts. They're really well done. You know, you're, you're an excellent communicator. So what did it feel like when you started kind of letting people in on what you were doing? Yeah, it was tough. I mean, um, I always struggled with that definition of um, being a runner. Uh, I kept being like, oh, I don't think I'm a runner. I'll be, I'll be a runner when I do a half marathon. And that always kept shifting. But when I started putting things on, on Instagram and, and started writing about it on my blog. Um, I realized that I wasn't the only person in this, you know, this feeling of self doubt. So I started documenting it for, for those kind of people to feel, feel like they weren't alone. Um, and then by doing it, I also realized I wasn't alone and that's kind of spiraled ever since really, um, doing my first marathon and the time, the time that I'd hoped for, I didn't get by, you know, I think 30 or 40 minutes. Uh, and I remember that day being like, I felt incredible having just run the marathon, but once the, the timing had sunk in, I thought, oh, you know, maybe I'm not a runner because I had to walk so much of it. Um, but then I looked on social media and all the people congratulating me and everyone being so supportive of runners ahead of me and behind me made me feel like I was part of a community of runners, which really, really helped me. And your blog has been very well received, won different awards. I didn't even know there were blog awards frankly, but you're, you're, you won some blog awards, which is really interesting. And when you go about sharing um, what's going on in your life and in your running, um, what is the, the internal calculus that you do in terms of like what to share, what not to share, how open and honest to be, you know, things of that nature? 
I mean, I always try and be open and honest about the the mental health aspect of things. Um, because I've certainly in the ultra running world, I've realized that most people will have suffered some sort of mental health episode. Um, and sharing that, again, it's that feeling of not being alone. Um, and I, I constantly feel like even when I don't want to share it, it's important to share it. Um, so I kind of have to fight through sometimes. I went to, uh, just before I left for MDS, I went through a really bad patch. And I didn't post anything on social media or on my blog for a good couple of weeks. And it was really hard to come back to posting something. I didn't know how to put it. I didn't know how to vocalize it without sounding uh, slightly drama queen-esque, if that's the right way to put it. But as soon as I did and I put that I was struggling and this was why and uh, the support was incredible. Um, and so every time I doubt that I should put something about my mental health, I just reread that and reread the comments and remind myself that, you know, honesty, especially when it comes to, to, to mental health and the running aspect is so beneficial for everyone around you. And after you'd reached the original goal of yours in terms of running a marathon before the age of 30, what shifted in you in terms of future goals? Because that was a big one. You know, it took you basically almost a decade to get it. And then did you immediately move on to new goals or did you just kind of just kind of stick with running because things were going well and you enjoy doing it? I just really enjoyed doing it. Um, so the the three other marathons I signed up for for that year besides London, the, um, they were international races. And as soon as I the first one I did after London was in Copenhagen and I went with a group of friends. We had an amazing time and the running was kind of an excuse to go traveling together. And I instantly fell in love with that aspect of seeing seeing the world by just putting one foot in front of the other um and i did san francisco marathon after that and i'd never been to america before so again that was a, like a wonderful excuse to go and see somewhere i'd always dreamed of going um and that's kind of always fueled me since so seeing you know different parts of the world even if it's just in 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 the uk going to see bits of the uk i've never seen before or it's kind of driven that onwards um, especially with MDS, that was a real driving thing of seeing something completely kind of alien or, or Hollywood-esque. And you mentioned before that you'd spent time in India. So has travel always been a big part of your life? Yeah, I'd say it's been more a part of my adult life. Uh, I went to India when I was uh, 17. My my grandmother lived out there when she was a kid. And I uh, that was kind of what the reason I went out there and fell in love with these completely different cultures that I've been brought up to. Um, and it was kind of there. I fell in love with, with, with traveling and I, I've always had a map somewhere in the house or multiple maps in the house and being like, Oh, I should go there next. Um, I'm always, you know, head in the clouds kind of thinking with traveling. Yeah. So what are some tips that you would give other people who are considering doing your know, traveling for a marathon? You've done it loads of times in terms of like what, what things do you consider when planning a trip? How do you decide like, all right, say the race is on a Saturday. Do you spend more days? in that location before the race or after the race, just like from a logistics and planning standpoint, how do you like to do it these days if you have full autonomy to make all of those decisions? Yeah. I mean, I definitely learned from my experiences. I did Berlin marathon, uh, two years ago and I flew in the day before the race and I aimed to fly out the day of, so it was like an eight o'clock flight and it was the worst idea. So I definitely wouldn't recommend doing that. <laughs> my flight in fact got canceled and I got stuck in Berlin for another day. But I would, my main thing about traveling is making sure you can sleep and get back and in, get into the rhythm of the time zone you're in. Um, when I first started running, 
I had a few running friends, not many, but they, one of the things they said was, you know, people always talk about, you know, eating right and uh, drinking enough fluid, but sleep is, is just as important as those two. Um, so for me, it's always making sure I can get into the time zone as quickly as possible. Um, and like just making sure that you know where to get some good food when you're, if you have a breakfast that you know works for you, can you take it with you? Uh, I have um, porridge that I'll always eat before a race and all it needs is hot water. So I can take it with me if I'm in a hotel, I can use the, the kettle and just make some, make some porridge. And I think that's bringing as many home comforts as you can and not really leaving too much to chance. So if you can plan, you know, uh, if you can take all the, the gels or whatever you're going to need, make sure you can keep them in your hand luggage, uh, just like, I've left nothing to chance in, in races now because I've I've lost gels. I've you know lost uh, not trainers, but I almost lost a pair of trainers in an airport. So I'm very <laughs> spread. Everything is spreadsheeted now. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I've hit, I've gone full you know nerdy uh, planning. My 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 girlfriend is one of the reasons for this. She loves to plan uh, when we go away on holiday. Everything is spreadsheeted out, and I've definitely taken that on now. So of all of your traveling marathon experiences. Which one would you say is the one if you had to do it again, you would do? Ooh, I mean, I love New York. That was just an incredible race. Um, ooh, I, I, I think probably either New York. I really enjoyed Rome. Uh, and the year I did it, it we had torrential rain. Uh, so I'd love to go and do it when there's nice weather. Um, and I did probably the one I would go back to, to right now. Uh, I did one in New Zealand. Uh, two years ago and it was out of this world lord of the rings-esque running and yeah i would definitely go back to that one i think that one on new york wow what a flight that must have been yeah it, it was long uh <laughs> to put it lightly holy cow so what when you think about now in terms of what makes a great marathon what characteristics do you would you weight most highly in terms of like if a marathon is like a good marathon versus a great one, what, what are the characteristics that you would, you know, weight the most if you had to categorize them? I mean, I definitely would put time out of that category. Um, for me, I love doing personal best, don't get me wrong, but um, my favorite race is really hilly. Uh, so personal best is out the window. I think for me, a great marathon is one that you go away with completely unique memories. Um, so for yeah, New York, just purely running in, in such an iconic place. Um, but for places like, um, Snowdonia, which is my favorite marathon, um, just running in, in the hills of North Wales is just incredible. Um, I just think it's memories. And if you can share it with someone else, even the, you know, the better, um, I did new, uh, London, my third go at doing London. I helped a guy out at mile 21 and we carried each other to the, to the finish line. And so that for me, London will be iconic because of that. And I made a, you know, two, two friends in that, in that race just from helping him out. Um, so I think it's the memories rather than, than times. I mean, when you're old and gray, you won't remember, you know, what you did in, in London 2018, you won't remember the time, but you might remember a memory. And you keep striving, it seems, to do kind of bigger and bigger, more adventurous type terrain and different and different things that can really challenge yourself and really kind of get you excited to try something new. So when did that become part of the decision making process about you know which race to do? When, when did like the, the adventure aspect start playing a part? 
I think when I got to about 10 road marathons, I started looking at, you know, moving into the ultra world just because I love running in, in, in the countryside in, in the UK. I thought, you know, wouldn't that be a great thing to, to do more of? Um, and as soon as I ran one, I realized that this was another great way of running and another great way of making friends and another great way of experiencing, you know, a, a different terrain or a different country. Um, so that's kind of snowballed with my desire to keep pushing myself um, and, you know, pushing my limits and seeing what I'm capable of and to show other people that you can be capable of it. And how has that changed your training? Uh, it's changed quite a lot, um, especially in the lead up to NDS. It was a lot of mileage. Um, that was really tough, kind of fitting it into my working week and, and fitting it into a weekend with while trying to be social at the same time. It was it was tough, but I live in a really beautiful part of the world and there's lots of, of running routes I can do. Um, so it's just, again, getting the spreadsheet out, making sure you can plan, plan your week and, and fit the training in, um, but also not beating myself up when I couldn't go out for a run. All right, so let's talk about MDS. So for the people who don't know, describe what uh what marathon de sab is because this is man this is crazy <laughs> this is like the craziest event i've ever heard um so just just tell people like what it is and what was your first introduction to it i mean yeah crazy is definitely the right word whenever i would talk to people about it before i left they go are you crazy are you mad why are you doing this <laughs> um so my first introduction to it was um in the UK, there were a few documentaries done about it um, when I was probably a teenager. And again, my friend who ran the uh, the marathon when I was at school, he'd always wanted to do this race as well. And I think that kind of played in my mind of, of finding something so iconic to do. And we were originally going to run it together until uh, until he had to pull out. Um, but yeah, the, the Marathon de Salve is, uh, it, it varies between about 220 kilometers to 250 kilometers depending on how tough the terrain is. But it is, uh, yeah, six days of running in the Sahara Desert with upwards of about 45. I think we got the highest was about 45 degrees uh, in the heat, and you have to carry all your kit. So the only thing you don't carry is the tent above your head, but you have to carry uh, all your clothes, your food, your cooking equipment, uh, your sleeping bag, your raw mat, everything uh the water is rationed out so you get um between like one to two liters every 10 kilometers um and again you have to ration it out after you've finished each stage the, the water you're given at the end of the stage has to last you until 10 kilometers into the next day um and yeah you have sand dunes you have really rocky terrain you're running through the night you're dealing with scorpions and spiders and uh, you know, dehydration and hallucination. It's, um, yeah, I, I, whenever I talk about it, people go, you're not selling it to me. You're not, <laughs> you're not making it sound appealing. <laughs> but it's, um, it's just the iconic landscape. It's, uh, I've, I wrote in my blog recently that I was a big fan of Aladdin growing up and, uh, that sort of beautiful landscape. And I always thought of it as, you know, like a film set. It didn't really exist until I was in the middle of, the Sahara Desert, surrounded by, you know, drawn almost sand dunes that look perfect. Um, but I realized that, you know, you can experience something like that in real life. The, some of the pictures of this event, you know, kind of take it from, I, I'm assuming it was a drone. I'm, hopefully it wasn't a helicopter because I can imagine like the sandstorm it would have created. But pictures from above the race, 
for like the starting line is hysterical. It's like just like in the middle of the desert, this inflatable starting line in the middle of nowhere. And just like this group of, you know, 800 to 1,000 people. And it's like, it, it it's just such a, such a wild environment. And to hear you say it's, you know, roughly 105 degrees Fahrenheit, you said about 40 degrees Celsius. Obviously, that's what you'd expect mm. in the Sahara Desert. I mean, that's hot under any circumstance. But it, I can't even imagine the heat from someone who's also, you know, exerting themselves highly while also carrying all this gear. I mean, how did you prepare for the heat? Um, well, actually, firstly, the, it was a helicopter. Uh, it was, it, and it does blow you. It, it does blow you about. Yeah. Oh no. Um, yeah, they had they had they had two on on call for for safety. So you had a little um, GPS box that you wore, and it had an SOS button. If you press that, a helicopter would come and find you. Um, but yeah, so in terms of getting ready for the heat, um, the UK is not really known for its heat. Um, but I lived about an hour away from um, a Formula One racetrack. And within that racetrack, they have uh, heat chambers um, that they use to train Formula One and endurance races. And it is essentially a treadmill in an oven. And they can control the heat. So I was running in about 10 days in the lead up to leaving. I'd go every other day and I'd run an hour in 40 to 45 degree heat. Um, and it, it allows your body to acclimatize. And then I was out there uh, two days, two, three days before the race started, which again allows your body to acclimatize a little bit. But I mean, the whole point of the challenge is it's, it is such an alien environment and your body does have to adjust quickly or you will fail. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, I've always been quite good at knowing my limits, even in races in the UK when it's really hot, not pushing it too much. So I was quietly confident that I would be okay in, with that. But you just never know until you get started, and and luckily I was I was good. But there were people that really struggled, and it, it it's not it's not a race that anyone should undertake lightly. But if you put in the training and, and you respect the race, um, it it's 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 doable. So, what was your training like to get ready? Like when when did it start? Like when did you start um, really prioritizing your training for this race? Like how many months out, and then what was the buildup like? Um, well, it kind of started in. Uh, well, basically July, I, I found out I had the place for the race in April, but I was doing marathons during that period. But July was my first ever ultra marathon, uh, which was a, a 50 miler, uh, which is one of the toughest in the UK as I like to choose things, uh, the toughest of something. Um, and that was kind of where it built from that was, it was a really tough race. I really struggled, but it was there that I realized that I really needed to prioritize my training. So, um, I focused a lot on just time on my feet. And then when it got to uh, New Year's Eve, I quit alcohol. Uh, I really focused down on my training and, and eating healthy and trying to uh, focus on my strength and conditioning as well to make sure that I didn't get injured or uh, didn't pick up a niggle leading up to the race that I would end up you know, pulling out during the race because of a small injury that flared up. Yeah, absolutely. And, and how many miles or kilometers were you putting in on a weekly basis when, when you got to really the the high point in your training? Um, about 60 miles a week. Um, some weeks were slightly bigger than that, but I, uh, it was more kind of putting them back to back. So putting doing days on days on days um, and making sure that I didn't just do time on my feet because uh, I'm not built like a runner at all. Um, so it was more making sure that my body could cope with it. So it was, you know, two to three hours in the gym as well. 
So when you say you're doing back to back, so 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 the sixty mile week, you're trying to put like half to maybe two thirds of it in kind of a couple of days in a row, just to kind of prepare yourself for the for the grind. Yeah, yeah. It's all about sort of getting your body. Saying getting used to is probably the wrong word, but sort of instructing your body that it's going to have to recover quickly. Um, and mm-hmm. that I think that's what really helped me for the race is I didn't really feel that fatigued day by day. I really struggled on, on day three, but that was mainly through, I think, lack of sleep. Um, but my body recovered very quickly, um, which I put down to this back to back routine. How about running with the pack? Did, how much how much training did you do with that? I did, I did a fair bit. Um, my friends would joke that I, I've had years of training with extra weight on my back, having lost all, <laughs> oh, <laughs> all my weight. Just, that's cool. Uh, <laughs> um, but it was it wasn't too bad. I've I've always enjoyed like long walks in around the UK, so I've been always been used to carrying a, a quite a heavy rucksack. But um, in the sort of last month or two before the race, I was building up the weight. But I actually never tr- really trained with the weight I was running the, the start of the race with. Because I presumed that I would be under 10 uh, kilograms. But when it came to weighing in, I was actually 11 and a half kilograms, my, my back, back. Um, which was quite a shock. Because um, you go through all this, uh, all the check-in and they check all your kit and, and they weigh your bag to make sure you're not under or over the weight limit. Uh, and I was in the queue very confident that I was going to be about 8 or 9 kilograms. And then to see 11 and a half was a real shock. Um, but I felt like I'd had done enough training so when it got later in the week, when my well, obviously I'd eaten um, some of the weight because each day was about a kilogram worth, so the food was a kilogram. Um, so I knew I'd be able to cope later on. But the first first day or two, I was that was a real concern that it was going to be too much for my back. But uh, the first day, my back really struggled. I would constantly have to lift the backpack up from from the bottom of it just to give my back a bit of a rest. Um, but after that, it slowly it got used to it, um, and I. I after day three, I didn't really struggle with, with the weight of the pack at all. And what was your biggest concern heading into the race? Failing. Um, that was my biggest concern is by putting things on social media and on my blog, I was um, telling the world that I was doing it. So there was no way I could fail quietly. Uh, I did a, um, an ultra marathon uh, a couple of weeks out before probably a bit more, maybe a month and a half before Marathon de Saab. And it was very snowy in the UK. And I it was meant to be 33 miles and then sleep. And then you do another 33 miles. And a lot of people who do Marathon de Saab do it. And uh, I did the first day and I actually pulled out the second day because it was so slippy and I was really worried about getting injured. But that really played on my mind. And I had a real bad uh, downward spiral with depression just after that. Um, so the idea of failing really, really it kind of followed me like a shadow. Um, if, if I failed, I don't think I could ever have gone back. Um, I think it would have been something that would really have stuck with me for a long time. Even though it's such an extreme challenge, like it's not as if you'd be failing something that people would view as easy. Like how could you not do that correctly? Right? Like how could you not like ride your bike to the end of the block? Like this is something that by any measure is an extreme challenge. So do you think it was do you think it was more self-imposed like you you viewing what something what they might say versus versus the reality of what people would actually comment? Oh yeah, 100%. I, I I've always been that kind of person that overthinks things and what other people are going to say. 
Um, especially in the social media world, you do have that concern that people might think badly of you, um, even though they, ne- they never do and it's very supportive. Um, but like standing back from it now, having the race being a few months back, I realized that it was just me putting that on, on myself. Um, but it's something I couldn't talk myself out of at the time. And when you had these like nightmare scenarios going through your head, what was the, what in your head, what was the most likely way things could have gone wrong? Dehydration. Um, I watched a documentary about um, a runner doing Marathon de Saab, and he was a very tall runner, so he was quite heavy. Uh, and I remember them saying, you know, you're going to sweat more than any other runner. This is going to put you at a disadvantage. And I remember stepping on the scales that night and going, I'm a heavier runner. I'm at a disadvantage. And so that always played with my mind with the dehydration would, could, be, could be the end of me. Um, so I was very, very careful uh, every day, making sure I was drinking enough. Uh, and then I was well hydrated enough each evening as well. And in the morning before I started, I was v- like very, very, very re- uh, vigilant about it because it was a real concern. And there's a lot of different ways to keep cool. I know there's, there's an ultra marathon um, here in the States and, you know, they, they, the same, same sort of thing. They run up to the top of Mount Whitney. It's 140 miles. And it's like supposed to be like, they, they chronicle it as like the hardest, you know, the hardest ultra marathon in the world or in America or whatever. And, you know, there's, it's kind of like the wild, wild west of like cooling mechanisms. <laughs> like it's like, it's almost like its own laboratory in and of itself. Like people will try all these different things to like, you know, make sure that the sun isn't affecting them, that the heat isn't going to like, you know, put them under. So what were some of the things that you did to protect yourself from the sun and from the heat over these six days? There isn't really a lot you can do Um, in terms of during MDS. There's no shade. There's no ice blocks to take on. You can put around your neck like I've seen in other ultras. It was mainly, um, you know, you have a, a hat to protect you from the sun uh, I invested in uh, clothes that were apparently very good at uh, reflecting the heat. I don't know if it was, you know, just PR that worked in your your own mind, but um, it was really tough. Like the heat was inescapable at some points. And if you could find any shade, um, I would take like a little break if I found a bit of shade just for maybe a minute or two. But it would be, be very rare to find long periods of shade. Um, it would mainly be under a tree. Or when you got to a checkpoint in the aid station, in the medical tent, you could get a little bit of shade before someone kicked you out because there wasn't anything wrong with you. Um, But uh, there was, I watched a documentary about positive mental attitude when it comes to to cold temperatures. Uh, So when I was in in the desert, I kept thinking of, you know, ice winds, uh, a really cold beer to try and help. I don't think it ever worked, but it was nice to think about something positive in the heat. (laughs) <laughs> and you mentioned that your that your body held up pretty good in terms of like you know the running and the pounding and all of that. So with that being said, in what ways like what what were some of the lowest moments that you had? Is there one or two that really stick out that really brought you low that you had to fight through? Yeah, there were two. Um day 3 which was a 30 I think 37 kilometer day, but it was completely flat. Uh, the day before was on sand dunes and I loved it because it was really epic and uh, you just felt incredible going through the dunes. But this day was very flat and it was very hot. It was the hottest day, um, I think, that, was, that we had during the race. And uh, I could really feel myself flagging. And I got near to the, the, I think the second checkpoint of the day and I, I was running out of water, but it was more that I was running out of, of morale. 
And I really got to that checkpoint. I lay on the ground and I couldn't stop but help myself but cry. And I really thought about quitting in that moment. And it was actually one of the only moments I thought about quitting. Um, and I sat there for, in my mind, what feels like forever. It was probably only a minute. Um, you're surrounded by other people. So there was no, uh, I had no self-consciousness and just bawling my eyes out in front of, in front of complete strangers. Um, but I just got my phone out and I, I looked at pictures of, of London Marathon of my first race of running with, with friends and with my girlfriend and, um, and looking at also times where races where I really struggled and going, well, I didn't quit here. So why should I quit now? Um, and realizing that if I'd quitted, if I quit at, at, you know, at London Marathon when it was hard, I would never have got to this stage. So if I was to quit here, what am I stopping myself from getting to next? Um, and I plugged in some music and, and really just pushed myself on. And I, I wrote on my, um, they have sand gaiters, so things to cover your trainers and they go up to about your ankles. And I wrote always on one foot and then forward on the other. Uh, and I just repeated those words over and over again uh, to keep me going. And then the next time that I really struggled was uh, on the long stage, which was actually the next day. Um, and that was 70, I think 78 kilometers. Uh, and I had a friend with me uh, called Charlie, who was really, really supportive. And we I don't think I would have got through without her. But it got near the end and I was falling asleep while I was while I was walking, while I was trying to get to the next checkpoint. Uh, and it was really scary. One minute I'd be up and then the next minute I'd be almost at the ground and having to stop myself from falling. And uh, I actually ate. I had I bought myself some coffee sachets as my like morning treat um, because I'm a massive coffee addict. And I actually ate the coffee sachet while we were moving to try oh, and God. put some caffeine in me. Um, yeah, that mixed with a gel that I popped uh, a couple of minutes later was not the best flavor, i got to admit. Oh, goodness gracious. At this point, you probably just like, I will do anything to feel better. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was pitch black and you, um, they left glow sticks out to, to show you the way, but there would be times where you wouldn't see them. And just in those moments where you couldn't see anything ahead of you, but your own head torch, you just like, I just need to keep moving. I need to find some light at the end of the tunnel, literally and metaphorically to keep moving. Um, but I, if I hadn't had uh, my friend Charlie with me, I really, really would have struggled on that day. Yeah, that leads me right into what I was going to ask next is just what's the social element like in a race like this? Obviously you guys come together at the end of each day, but you're not necessarily with each other over the, you know, during the course, what, you know, what is the communal feeling during this race? It's the best ever. Um, like people talk to me about it before and be like, oh, you make friends for life in, in your tent because you, you share a tent with, with eight people. Um, and I remember thinking, oh, that's just people exaggerating. But we were really close-knit. I mean, a lot of us did parts of the race together, but um, there were two girls in the next door tent that we were really close with and they were, they were leading the race. They were, they came, one of them came third and the other one uh, finished in the top 20. Um, but we all came together in the evening. We'd all exchange stories and we give each other advice. And if we were struggling with, you know, a part of your pack or a part of your body, we'd all be there to help each other. And I really think that's why I miss, I, I, I've missed the race so much. I am, um, when I was there, I said, you know, I'm never going back. This is the worst idea ever. I don't know why people do this. <laughs> but as soon as I finished, I went, I want to go back. I want to be back with these people. I want to be doing something like this again. Because you just, you, you create such incredible 
friendships so quickly because you need each other. Um, you really need each other to keep going. Yeah, you mentioned that in one of your posts that it was that you had this. It, it was the best feeling and the worst feeling ever when you crossed that finish line. And certainly, I've never done anything remotely near what you've done. And that was such an interesting observation because I would never have expected that. Yeah, I mean, running so the last um, stage, well, the last competitive stage is a marathon, and I. I really struggled with that stage because I knew that once I got to the finish line, yes, the race was over and I'd, I'd completed this incredible feat. But I also knew that I would not be with these people anymore and I would be back into the real world. Because when you're there, my phone didn't work. So there was, I mean, I, I turned it off anyway, but there was no connecting with the outside world. There was no bad news. You could just enjoy the very like primeval, primitive life together. Because that's what it was. You You'd build a, you know, build a tent together, you cook food, and it'd be such a simple way of living that I knew as soon as the race was over, it was back to reality. I mean, there were parts, I mean, my friends and family, of course, I missed, but I just loved that escapism of it all. It was fantastic. Part of this, you know, I, I try to put myself in your shoes, you know, hearing about this and reading about it and following along. And how much of this is enjoyment and trying to experience new things? versus trying to see how tough you are and how tough you can be? I think it's 50-50. Um, I really enjoy this pushing myself. And I've, uh, I've got a, an ultra marathon uh, this weekend, in fact. I'm still recovering from an injury, so it's going to be very slow and it'll be more of a walk than a run. But after this is finished, my focus for the rest of the year is to, to, to go under four hours in the marathon. Uh, my first marathon was five hours, I think 40, I think if memory serves. So it's, it's a huge difference. Um, and I'm really enjoying that of pushing my limit and seeing what I can do in the marathon. Um, and that marathon will probably be 20 minutes down the road from where I live. So it's not, not seeing the world, but I'm just as excited for that race as I am for, um, the races I'm going to be doing later in the year. So I'm doing one in North Wales where there's beautiful mountainous landscapes, my favorite race. Um, and then the next day I'm going over to Dublin and Ireland to do another marathon. Um, so that's like the adventure part as well. Just, just, really just a little weekend to. of marathoning, just a small little weekend. Yeah, you know, a, a casual short. weekend away. <laughs> yeah. A casual weekend, you know, very relaxing. Only, you know, 26.2 miles every day for two days. <laughs> <laughs> With a little travel in between. Yeah. Just, just, yeah, this is wild. And then let's talk about what you're doing later in the year. Because I saw you hyping this up too. Like this looks like another amazing adventure. Which one? So this are you is the one. I, I guess it was the one where I now now the name escapes me. So now I feel guilty. Is the one where it's like supposed to be like the hardest marathon in the world? And you have these pictures. It looks like you're like running up and down yeah. like these cliffs. And it's like, oh goodness gracious! Look at this one. Yeah. So this is um, Jungfrau Marathon in Switzerland. Um, That's it. It's yeah. It, it was. It's a weird kind of coincidence. I we're, I'm going to the area with with my girlfriend for a walking holiday, um, and just so happened though this was no planning by my side. I googled to see if there was a race on nearby, uh, and it just so happened that this marathon is exactly where we're going to be. Um, so I went, oh, you know, I'll do this. It'd be great, and I didn't think how bad it was going to be, um, and then. I got the place and started doing a bit more research. And then, yeah, it's it's a marathon, but it has two kilometers worth of climb in, I think, the last 
I think it's the last third of the race. You, It's all uphill. I, I think it might be the last two thirds. It's all uphill. And it has quite strict cutoffs, which will be difficult for me. But I, am, I love the climbing. I'm, I'm more afraid of going downhill than I am going uphill. I quite enjoy the going uphill. So I'm hoping <laughs> it won't be too bad. And if the day, if the weather is, is, is good, apparently it's stunning. I mean, the views are incredible. But if it's bad like it was last year, all you're seeing is fog. You can't see anything but, you know, two feet in front of you. But um, uh, yeah, I can't wait to see how that goes. Yeah, I mean, just a picture in and of itself. I was like, all right, well, this is definitely not something you would see from like a tourist bureau. <laughs> this is like trying to like scare people away from the marathon versus like trying to get people into it. Unless they're adventure seekers like yourself, in which case maybe, hey, the scarier and more, you know, challenging, the better. Yeah, there are enough crazy people like me in the world to uh, to book out that race two times over, I think. Well, then let me ask you this. What do you think people are capable of? And how would have you answered that question 15 years ago versus today? I think I probably never thought about it 15 years ago because I never really thought about pushing limits at all. Whereas now I'm very much, um, I, I use a phrase quite a bit of doing what you can't. Um, I didn't think I could do a marathon. I didn't think I could do 10K. I didn't think I could do a half marathon. didn't think I could do an ultra. I think if you put the focus and you look after your body and not just focus on completing a marathon, but completing yourself, I don't think there's, there's any limits when it comes to running of what you're capable of, as long as you can keep pushing yourself forward and you've got a good support network around you. Yeah. And you've, you've shown that. I mean, let's look at, you know, London Marathon this year, you you dropped your, your time down again. You ran 4.14, and that was after trashing yourself at MDS. I mean, what was your expectation going into that race? Because, I mean, man, like you just mentioned, you're still recovering from MDS, never mind what you were able to do in London. Yeah, so London was uh, two weeks after MDS, um, and I, I, I didn't think it was going to go very well, and I hadn't planned any, you know, any time. Uh, until I spoke to um, a woman who who done very well in, in MDS a few years ago, and she did a personal best after after completing MDS, and uh, I suddenly thought, oh, maybe you know, maybe I can do something like that. And uh, so I lined up uh, to start the race with two friends who are part of the Brooks uh, running team with me, and um, I thought I'll run with them for a bit. And they were going um, sub four hour. And I thought, you know, if I can keep with them for half the race, that would, that would be amazing. And it will set me up for, for training for the rest of the year. And we just kept each other laughing and it, it just kept going and going until a, about mile 21, where I just thought I'm not having fun anymore. Um, we stopped chatting. It got very quiet and I needed to, I really wanted to put my headphones in and block the world out. Um, so I slowed down, but finishing the race with um, a personal best of, uh, I think 23 minutes and that that was a, a marathon i did in january to go that much quicker was a real surprise for me but it's also what has caused this injury i was so focused on the running and not focused on the strength and conditioning that i did i did that race and then i went on and did a personal best at a 10 kilometer distance and then i did a half marathon and the half marathon is where this injury stopped my running essentially um I think my body just really wanted to rest. Um, so it would constantly remind me with a bit of knee pain and then I'd ignore it and I'd keep running. And then this half marathon, it, it really went, nope, you're not doing any more now. You need a rest. 
Man, that is wow. So this is like this is a very unique way of tapering for the London Marathon, essentially. Yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> but, <laughs> what, yeah, what, is, what does your unique. three week taper look like? I have an idea. Run across the Sahara Desert, <laughs> then take two weeks off. That's the ideal taper. Yeah, it's yeah. I definitely wouldn't be a coach with that uh, mentality. I think I would uh, get get a few bad reviews from people heading uh, up to the marathon completely destroyed but i was just very very fortunate the fact that my training had prepared me so well for mds that i arrived at london not fresh but mentally more able than i'd ever been right which obviously um you could argue is more important than being fresh if you know if your results you know can prove anything yeah i mean when i set my personal best aim was to go under 430 um this was sort of almost a year and a half before i actually did it uh, I wasn't mentally prepared to do it until I actually ended up doing it in New York because I didn't believe I could do it. So every time I would get near it or or get slightly near it, I would convince myself out of being able to do it. So when I came to New York, uh, I'd in fact done a marathon a week before. So I'd taken the pressure off of doing the time and just thought, I'm just going to go for it and, and really trust in my body and see how, how far I could go. Um, and I think that played a real part is just believing in the fact that you you can push it. Um, I mean, believing will only get you so far, but it's that extra percentage that I think can get you over that limit and get you over the wall when it really, really, really kicks in. Absolutely. James, last thing, where can people learn more about you and what you're doing? Uh, I mean, the best place would be my blog or uh, Instagram. So it's either the morningcoffeerun.com or morningcoffeerun uh, on, on Instagram or Facebook as well. Um, there's lots of exciting races coming up for next year that um, I'm not ready to, to share yet. I haven't got the planning fully done, but it's going to be even bigger than the Marathon de Sable. Lots of Excel sheets. Yeah, this, is, this one's even more. It's self-planning, <laughs> so it's a lot of spreadsheets. There you go. James, thank you so much for coming on. I can't wait to follow along. You're such a fun person to follow. and You're doing great things, and I love the way you communicate all of it. Thank you again for coming on the show. Oh, thank you. It's been absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you, James. Once again, I think if you listened all the way to this point, then you know why I was really excited to have him on the show. For me, it was not a matter of if I was going to ask him, but when, just because everything he does is just so fascinating, and I love how he presents it and how he discusses it. So again, James, thank you so much for coming on the show. Also, thank you to our sponsors today, Ragnar Relays, Megaton Coffee, and TuneUp CBD. I use TuneUp and Megaton every single day. That's the coffee I drink. And TuneUp CBD, I use both the droppers. And if I have an ailment, like I had a foot issue last week, I was using the TuneUp CBD balm on it. And I was really excited to use it because actually my chiropractor... Um, recommended using CBD bomb without even knowing that uh, CBD was a sponsor of the show. So that was a nice little, nice little conversion of a couple of things that I'm interested in. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to the sponsors and thank you for rating, reviewing and sharing the show. Go out there, have a great day and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of In Post Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. 
Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.